Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. Professor Brian Cox is kind of a rock star in the world of popular science. But that makes sense, since he was literally a rock star at one point, playing keyboards for the British pop band Dream, before finishing his PhD in high-energy particle physics. Cox is currently a professor at the University of Manchester and works on the ATLAS project at CERN's Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, which is seeking out some of the most fundamental properties of physics in our universe. But Cox is perhaps best known for his various TV appearances hosting scientific programs on the BBC and Science the Channel. Cox came to the Academy last week for a special summer event to promote his newest show, Wonders of the Universe. And before he went on to give us an exclusive sneak peek, he sat down with Science in the City for a brief interview about his show, the book which accompanies it, and his work overall, both as a public science educator and physicist at CERN. In this week's podcast, we bring you that interview. You'll hear all about Cox's journeys around the world while filming for his new show, and you'll gain some insight into the progress of the Large Hadron Collider project today. So I'm sitting here with Brian Cox. You're here promoting your new book and your new show, Wonders of the Universe. And uh, if you could tell me a bit about the show first, what is the big idea? Well, there are several layers, actually, to Wonders of the Universe. In one sense, it is a history of the universe, but it's split up into four sections, which are really, they were motivated initially by the laws of physics. So initially, actually, the show was going to be about the fundamental laws of nature. And it, it kind of became apparent that we could tell the history of the universe, but using that conceit, if you like, of the, of the laws of nature. So the first show to be broadcast here is about, in scientific terms, stellar nucleosynthesis. But in television terms, it's about where did the carbon come from that make up our bodies, given that the universe was 70% hydrogen, 30% helium. At the start, there was no carbon, no oxygen, no iron in the universe. So where did that come from? So it's a story about the life cycle of stars, essentially. It's a program about time, which becomes really about the far future of the universe. So what's the fate of the universe? Uh, but actually, in my language as a physicist, it's about thermodynamics, and particularly the second law of thermodynamics. So there's a big sequence in the, in the show, actually, about entropy and the question of why the universe tends to disorder. And then there's a show about gravity, which is a show really about the curvature of space and time. And there's a show about, what's the last one? Light. So what it's really about is asking the question, well, how do we know all this about the universe? Because, of course, until very recently, the only contact we had with the universe was the surface of the Earth, essentially. Uh, Now we've spread out into the solar system a little bit. But everything we know about the most distant galaxies, the distant stars, the very early universe was carried to us on beams of light because that's the only way that it could get to us. So it's what information is encoded in that light and how did that lead us to this picture of the universe that we have today? And uh, a lot of what you do is very much educational. So could you tell me a bit about who your intended audience here is and how you scale your work towards the public to make things like thermodynamics accessible, especially because physics, which is your main subject, is usually seen as such an inaccessible subject to the public? I think it's one of the great challenges to disabuse, particularly children, of this idea that science is difficult. So I, I genuinely do not think science is difficult, and it's one of the big problems we have in getting 
children to go into science and engineering, that they think it's for something that you have to be a genius to do. Not true. You just have to be interested in the universe. And if you're interested in the nature, the way that things work, then what I always emphasise to kids in schools is if you're interested, you can be a scientist, you can be an engineer. You don't have to be Einstein. I mean, Einstein famously said that when he was young, he was no Einstein because, you know, the, the, the myth of the old man with white hair sort of exploring the universe in his head, in this huge brain. That's what it is. It's a myth, right? It, anybody can do it pretty much if they're interested. So what I think the challenge in a TV show for a scientist who wants to push that agenda forward is what can you do in 43 minutes or an hour? You know, what, what can you do in these shows? You have to make choices, very clear choices, about what science you want to include because it can't just be a dense lecture for an hour because no one will watch it. So what I try to do is have at least one section in the show where we explain a fundamental piece of science really carefully. So in one of the shows, we, we do explain the second law of thermodynamics, talk about entropy, we say what it is, and we give, in physicist terms, a statistical definition of entropy. It's in there in the show. So I think you have to try and balance some key depth and going back to this idea of you can do it if you're interested, can you pinpoint a moment when you became really interested in science? What drove you to it? I mean, I have always wanted to be, if not a physicist, because I didn't probably know what that was when I was four or five years old, but I wanted to be an astronomer. I was fascinated by the stars, fascinated by space flight, space travel. I was born at the tail end of the Apollo mission, so my first Christmas Eve was spent, apparently, although I don't remember it, on my dad's knee watching Apollo 8 go around the dark side of the moon. You know, the three human beings on that spacecraft lost sight of the Earth for the first time. It was a fascinating mission. So I grew up with that. So I always thought that was what I wanted to do. And then it was reinforced by, I suppose, Star Wars. I couldn't tell the difference between science fiction and science facts at the age of seven or eight. Then Carl Sagan's Cosmos, which was just at the right age for me. I was 11. And to get 13 episodes over 13 weeks of Carl Sagan at his height, you know, with, in my opinion, the best science documentary series that's ever been made, that really just confirmed it for me. So that's one of the reasons, actually, that later, after I'd been doing science for years and years and years, and I was been a you know, a postdoc and a professor and all those things. And I just thought I got the opportunity to make some TV programs. And I, I always do actually think back to the impact that Cosmos had. And so my kind of ambition, which I haven't probably never achieved because it's such a work of genius, but I would love to make something that good, right? To, to make something that approached Cosmos. That's very difficult, <laughs> but I keep trying. <laughs> Going to your other work, you also work at the Large Hadron Collider Project, CERN. Could you tell me a bit about what's happening there right now? And there have been some hints of the Higgs boson, so if you'd explain what that is and also what it's showing now. It's just very, very interesting at CERN at the moment, and actually at Fermilab in, in Chicago, where I've also worked at the Tevatron Accelerator. So one of the reasons it was built is to see whether our standard model of particle physics, which is our best theory of three of the four forces of nature, so in other words, everything that happens at a fundamental level other than gravity is in that theory. And that theory contains within it a mechanism called the Higgs mechanism, which is theoretical and has to this day not been proved to be correct. And it's a mechanism that generates mass in the universe. So it's the way that particles acquired mass in the theory. 
And it's interesting, actually, that you need to do something quite bizarre at first sight to give particles mass. What we've, has been known for many decades is that if you just say, well, I know the mass of the electron. It was measured in 1897, 1898, and um, so it weighs something. Um, but if you just put the masses in by hand in the theory, then the theory doesn't work at the energies that the LHC and other colliders work at, particularly the LHC, actually. So you need to do something clever. The Higgs mechanism essentially fills the universe with a, a field or a, you know stuff called, called the Higgs field, and particles get their mass by interacting with it. So that predicts the existence of a particle called the Higgs particle, at least one of them, and in some theories more than one. And so we've been looking for this thing. Last week, actually, or this week, at the end of July, there are announcements made from CERN that both experiments have seen a hint of something that looks like the Higgs particles should. They're not sufficiently significant yet that you can claim a discovery. So in other words, there's, there's a chance that it's a statistical fluctuation that could go away. But also, uh, the Tevatron in Chicago has seen a similar, less significant hint in the same place. So you've got really four experiments now, individual experiments seeing the same thing. So whilst it's not, you know, in a properly scientific sense, you, no discovery is claimed, it's, I think it's the first genuine hint that it might be there. And I find it remarkable, actually, because obviously it's been this mythological thing for my whole career, right? This, is this Higgs thing right? It's the widely accepted mechanism. But it was invented, well, it was theorised to be there, just from an aesthetic mathematical sense in a way you know it's just it's it's a beautiful mechanism that makes some equations work but really you're talking about something utterly fundamental in the universe it's like you know in the very early universe the picture is that there was no such thing as mass and then something happened I suppose mass almost crystallized out in some sense there's an event in the early universe as it expanded and cooled where the Higgs mechanism kicked in and gave mass to particles which subsequently of course gave structure to the universe if everything was massless there would be no structure in the universe so it's a fundamental thing and I think it's going to be one of the great discoveries of all time actually if this turns out to be right and this signal is there then we inferred the presence of one of the most fundamental events in the universe we inferred something very deep about the way the universe works and got it right right and actually i'm not sure when the last time we did that was <laughs> inside with that level of precision um it's it's a remarkable achievement i think if it's right and we'll know within six months a year at most you know i'm really cautious about these things because i'm an experimental physicist and the experimental physicist view is that we've not got sufficient statistical power yet to say that this is there but it's a real sign so it's fascinating and what does it mean if we find it how is your life going to change it's no longer going to be theoretical so is there a next thing that you're going to be looking for? Oh, yeah. I mean, in particle physics terms, it's the, it's the opening of a door. It's not the dotting of I's and crossing of T's at all. I mean, this is the heart of our fundamental description of three of the four forces of nature. So th there are lots of unanswered questions. But without this, without knowing that this is the way that nature works, there's no, no progress to be made. So it has to be found one way or the other. And it will be. I mean, the great thing about LHC for the first time, is that you either confirm this theory or rule it out. So it's real experimental science. It's not, there's no dodge room anymore. If the LHC doesn't find the Higgs, it doesn't exist. You, I mean, there are some tiny, tiny ludicrous caveats if you're a real pedant that you could say, well, yeah, you could have this kind of Higgs. Where you, but it's really just, it's not there if we don't find it. 
and something else happens. And um, but it looks like you know, I, I don't want to be unscientific about it, but I I would be very surprised if this weren't a signal of something. I think I'd be surprised. And it's a wonderful thing because from a particle physics perspective, you've got to measure it. You've got to make sure that, you know, how does it talk to the other particles? Is it the Higgs that we expected? There are lots of different theories. There's a theory called supersymmetry where there are five Higgs particles, for example. So which one is it? Is it the standard model Higgs? Is it supersymmetric? One of the five? Is it something else? So, so there's a lot of work to do, pinning down its properties. And then you, you want to make a Higgs factory, really, then. You want to make loads of them. So then you, you, particle physics perhaps shifts from a search mode to a precision mode again in trying to measure precisely the properties of this thing, which is so fundamental to the way the universe works. Going back to the show in the book, you did a lot of traveling while filming this. I mean, it was very much based on sort of describing scientific principles of the universe right here on Earth. So could you tell me if you had to pick what your favorite place would be and what sort of scientific principle that helped illustrate? I mean, choosing the locations was quite difficult for this show. We did a previous show called Wonders of the Solar System, which is also showing on the Science Channel. And that was easy because we wanted to talk about the volcanoes on Jupiter's moon Io. We could go to a volcano and talk about the volcano. The reason we did that was because we didn't want to make a science show with loads of graphics in it. We wanted to use locations to talk about the science. And it's, it's easy in a show about the solar system because it's essentially a lot of geology. But in this show, it's about esoteric concepts. It's about the universe. So how do you find locations? So one of the things that I think worked really well, we found an abandoned diamond mining town in Namibia called Coleman's Cop, which was abandoned 50 years ago. And uh, it's just been left to fall to bits in the desert. And one of the best ways also of, of explaining entropy and why things tend to disorder is to use piles of sand. So particularly we build a sand castle if you just randomly dump a load of sand on the ground, then it randomly dropping into the shape of a sandcastle has the same probability as it dropping into a particular pile of sand. It's just that there are so many more ways of arranging the sand in a pile than there are in a castle that it's more likely that you'll end up with a pile, right? And it's just that's it, right? That's the second law of thermodynamics, right? But um, so, so we could do that, but with a backdrop of this decaying town in the desert, that's what I said earlier about the fact that you need to make a kind of, I suppose, an emotional connection with the audience. You're trying to be impressionistic and get shown the excitement of science and layer messages there about decay and, you know, make it look beautiful, but also have it in the mind, you know, there's something that's falling to bits, the wind's blowing it, the sand's blasting it, the, the town is falling to pieces, which is what's going to happen to the universe right, as, it, as it passes into the far future. So I think it works on every level because you had the... You had the sand there. It's natural to make a sandcastle and give this explanation of thermodynamics. But also in the background, you've got the same thing echoed again in the background, um, but with perhaps more emotional content because it's a real thing that's decaying away. So I think that worked really, really well. I was proud of that sequence. Lastly, to wrap up, uh, were there any unexpected bumps in the road or any anecdotes you want to share about all these journeys you did? Um, it actually, it was in some sense an unlucky series. The solar system series I filmed before was just so lucky. We filmed a solar eclipse, and it was the we went to Varanasi in India, and it was the only place in the world that was clear that day. <laughs> and when the eclipse happened, we went to see the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis. We saw them, you know, just we turned up, and there they were. We filmed them, uh, but in universe, completely the opposite. Actually, we we tried to do a lot of things, and just unluckily, didn't work. And that's the way television is. For example, we went to Venezuela. We were there for days and days in the jungle in this 
awful place, right? Nothing there at all, just just insects and swamps to film a thing called, I think it's called the Everlasting Storm. And it was a beautiful idea. There's, there's a storm there, which is close to the Caribbean coast of Venezuela. And it's so regular and happens so often that it's called the Lighthouse of the Caribbean because sailors used to navigate by its light because they knew where it was. It was over this thing called Lake Maracaibo. And so you could see the storm and you're in your ship and you knew where that was, so you knew where you were going. It was great. So we were going to start the light program with this great thing about light being used as a, a lighthouse, you know, a beacon to tell you where to go. And it's a great analogy with the way we've used light to understand the universe. So we got there and the everlasting storm wasn't there. <laughs> it stopped. It wasn't there. And we sat there for days and days and it never happened. And we'd flown there from Cape Town of all places. So we'd gone from South Africa to Venezuela to film this thing that just for the first time in human history vanished you know so so we went home uh, you know after sitting in a swamp for a week getting bitten by things so it was just an awful experience it was nice to you know it's nice to kind of visit new countries and things but not sitting in a swamp waiting for a storm that's gone so that was um that was an unpleasant experience and there quite you know there, there are quite a few of those that so quite a few things didn't work but the thing you see is a polished and seamless beautiful construction that looks like it was easy. Professor Cox's new show, Wonders of the Universe, continues Wednesdays at 9 p.m. on Science the Channel. But if you need some wonders from Dr. Cox to tide you over until then, you can download the full Science in the City event recording on our website, www.scienceandthecity.org. Hear him get interviewed by Science's Bernadette McDade. We'd like to thank Harper Design, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers, and Science, the channel, for sponsoring this event. Science in the City is a not-for-profit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. We've recently launched our new Fall and Winter Speaker Series, Being Human in the 21st Century. First up, join author Joshua Foer this September as he discusses the limits of human memory. It turns out that your brain's a lot more flexible than you'd think. For a complete listing of events, visit www.scienceandthecity.org backslash beinghuman. Thanks for listening. Tune in again next time as we bring you some science educational excitement straight from the field. <laughs>